well, I'm not a, a card player. Um, the, the occasional family card game I, I do play, but by and large, I don't really, uh, don't really play cards. I didn't really get into the, uh, the Texas Hold'em and poker craze of a, of a decade or, or so ago. But I know enough about playing cards uh, to know uh, what a trump card is, right? A, a, a trump card is the card that wins the hand. A trump card is the card that wins the hand. Sometimes I think it's like we try to play a trump card with the words or phrases that we say. Sometimes I think it's like we try to play a trump card with the words or phrases that we say too. Even when it comes to discussing or, or debating um, faith or, or the Bible. Like in, in my experience, people could be interpreting Scripture in different ways. People could be having a conversation, debating, arguing about uh, perhaps what this verse or this passage really means or, or really says. And inevitably someone says, well, all I know is God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Like, boom, they just laid down their trump card, end of conversation, they win. Has anybody else heard that phrase or, or seen that phrase uh, on a bumper sticker or displayed somewhere? Maybe even, uh, uh, maybe even you've said it. Maybe even we've said it at one point. Like other phrases that we're talking about in our sermon series right now called Half True, it sounds good and right, although in my mind it also sounds a little bit snarky. But it sounds good and right. I mean, if God says something, of course we should believe it. But it's only half true. So let's go a little bit deeper this morning. Let us pray. God, open our hearts and minds to your word for us this day. We pray that it would take root there, that it would grow us, change us, enable us to bear fruit uh, for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're jumping to two different places um, in, in the Bible this morning for our scripture readings. Um, so the first scripture this morning will be from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 12 through 14. And just, you'll just have to stay tuned for the sermon. That's all I'll say. The latrines must be outside the camp. You will use them there outside the camp. Carry a shovel with the rest of your gear. Once you have relieved yourself, use it to dig a hole and then refill it, covering your excrement. Do these things because the Lord your God travels with you right in the middle of your camp, ready to save you and to hand your enemies over to you. For this reason, your camp must be holy. The Lord must not see anything indecent among you or he will turn away from you. And now also from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, in chapter 5, as Jesus is teaching in his Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to be reading 17 and 18 and then 38 through 48. Jesus says, Don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. I say to you very seriously that as long as heaven and earth exist, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke of pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. Therefore, whoever ignores one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called lowest. And then 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said... 
an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you that you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on the right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. When they wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, let them have your coat too. When they force you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to those who ask and don't refuse those who wish to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you so that you will be acting as children of your Father who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good and send rain, sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so you must be complete. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, I guess God is against indoor plumbing and toilets, right? I mean, God said it. I believe it. That settles it, right? It says right there in the Bible in Deuteronomy that you're supposed to go outside of the place where you live, dig a hole, relieve yourself there, and then bury the excrement. I hope you have woods out back. You might not have much privacy. I mean, we chuckle at this, right? And, and rightly so. I mean, we don't really debate this today. Of course, we, we don't believe that God thinks that we should not have indoor plumbing and toilets. But this gives a silly example as to why the statement, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, that people use as a trump card and as a way of approaching Scripture wildly misses the point. When we say that, it's like this security blanket that we're trying to wrap around ourselves to protect us and our faith from hard questions and from critical reflection. And it painfully neglects the ongoing work of God and it painfully oversimplifies this complex and beautiful and wonderful gift that we call the Bible. And that's actually what Christians mean when they say that. God said it, they really mean the Bible says it, therefore I believe it, and that settles it. But, but if we adhere even strictly to a, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it approach, we would still be in all kinds of trouble. Right? Here are just some of the other ways that we would have to change our lifestyle. Don't wear blended fabric. Don't sow two seeds in the same field. Eliminate pork and shrimp from your diets. So that means no bacon. Men, don't trim the edges of your beard. Children who curse their parents or who are constantly rebellious should be stoned. Women, if you're not a virgin when you're married, the men of the town are to stone you. Women, if you worship with your hair uncovered, you disgrace your head. If you don't cover your head, your hair should be cut off. Now, when reading these, I'm guessing none of us would say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Right. So far, I mean, it's still kind of funny, but a God, a God said it, I believe it, that settles it approach to Scripture can be incredibly harmful. This approach was used to prop up, undergird, support the institution of slavery for centuries by Christians who argued from the Bible that slavery was a part of God's social order. 
They cited 200 plus verses that address slavery and regulate its practices in the Bible, saying that it was acceptable to God. Like Luke 12, 47, for instance, the slave who knew what his master wanted and did not do what was wanted will receive a severe beating. Ironic, incredibly ironic, since virtually the entire identity of the people of Israel, the entire identity of the Old Testament scriptures is based on God freeing his people who were slaves in Egypt and liberating them, right? Plus, enslaved people themselves and abolitionists who worked to abolish the institution of slavery were reading the same Bible and coming to the conclusion that actually slavery was a grievous sin before God, an abomination. So maybe it's not so easy as just God said it, I believe it, that settles it after all. Maybe that's not helpful. Maybe that's a a cop-out from being stretched and growing in faith. Maybe it's even harmful. Maybe it's not even how Jesus or the apostles or the Bible itself approached Scripture. So first the problem, then the alternative. Let's zoom into the first part. God said it. What do we mean when we say that? Is it really true that God said it? Like when we apply that to the Bible, do we mean that God like literally spoke every word that appears in our Bible? If so, what language was it? What translation was it? Was it Shakespearean English, the King James Version? Did God, does God speak Shakespearean English? Did God speak in Hebrew or, or Greek? Or do we mean that God inspired it through the power of of the Holy Spirit, that God influenced it. Most places in scriptural biblical authors do not claim divine dictation, but divine inspiration. Divine inspiration, meaning they they trust that they're being inspired and led by the Holy Spirit. And of course, God speaks through them. And of course, God speaks through the words of scriptures. And of course, God still speaks to us through the words of scripture. But we still have to interpret what we read with the help of the same Holy Spirit that inspired the writing of scripture in the first place. Believing that Scripture is inspired, believing that Scripture tells the story of God and God's salvation, believing that Scripture helps shape our understanding of who God is and what God is like so that we can be equipped to love and to do good in the world is very different from simply trying to to trump card everything by saying, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That settles it also oversimplifies matters. I mean, did you ever think about how how translators might agonize over how to translate one word from Hebrew or Greek to English or or another language, not to mention the whole of Scripture? I think it would be hard for it to be completely settled, for instance, if a, a Greek or Hebrew word could mean two different things in English depending on the context. I mean, think about how many different translations of the Bible there are. For a text to to be settled and to so quickly say that 
takes, lets us off the hook, really, in terms of doing the hard, faithful, spiritual work of, of wrestling with the text, about talking about it in community, uh, of, of understanding the context, right? Even the Bible itself pushes against this notion of Scripture being settled. And here's the perfect example, and we just talked about it a couple weeks ago at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. At the time of the early church, the Scriptures said, God's Word said, that Gentiles were outside of the family of God. That Jews were forbidden to eat with Gentiles. It says that. It said that in the scriptures. Jews were not supposed to eat with Gentiles. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Except it wasn't settled at all. Because the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles. They come to faith in Jesus Christ. They become a part of the family of God along with Jews. Now what? Clearly it's not settled because God is speaking a new thing, doing a new thing, a fresh word. And the vast majority of what we call the New Testament, of Paul's letters, the vast majority of the content in Paul's letters is Paul trying to come to grips and to understand and to theologically articulate what is going on with the fact that Gentiles are now a part of God's family along with Jews. Paul and the other apostles clearly took Scripture very seriously. Like They believed that God spoke through Scripture, but they also debated its meaning. They also came to different conclusions and interpretations. And the Bible itself preserves that within its own pages that we call the New Testament. Maybe it wasn't so settled after all. And they're having to wrestle with it. Do you know this isn't how Jesus approached Scripture either, by the way? In our gospel passage this morning in Matthew, we see Jesus teaching in his famous Sermon on the Mount, where he's teaching the the crowds. Now, the scripture that he knew well, that he was trained in, well-versed in, was what we would call the Old Testament. It was the law and the prophets. That's what informed Jesus' teaching. And as he teaches the crowds, he, he says early on, don't go thinking that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. In other words, I've not come to undermine or to, or, or, uh, or to tear down what God has communicated through God's word. I've not come to, to, to tear it down or undermine it. So clearly Jesus held scripture in a very high regard. Yet then he goes on to teach about what scripture or what interpretation may have said at one point and how he, Jesus reinterprets it in the present time. You have heard it said, but I say to you, over and over again, right? You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's in the Old Testament in three places, by the way. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, do not oppose those who who harm you, who want to hurt you. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn and offer them the left. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Then he says it again, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who harass you. You've heard it said, 
But I say to you, and this repeats numerous times in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Each time Jesus offering a reinterpretation from the prevailing one. And that's Jesus reinterpreting Scripture. And he does it with adultery, and he does it with murder, and he does it with oaths. This is Jesus reading Scripture and interpreting it in light of his heavenly Father's character, in light of the power of the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus pushing back against some of the dominant interpretation of Scripture in his day from those in power, like the scribes and the Pharisees, who, by the way, their very approach to Scripture was God said it, I believe it. That settles it. Why? Because they wanted to hold on to their power and to control other people. Which is why so often Jesus gets frustrated with the Pharisees for missing the point, right? And not understanding the spirit behind the law or God's word. Jesus' approach sounds nothing like God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It sounds more like God continuing to speak in new and fresh ways to and for God's people so that they can love God and serve God more and better. And if you've ever read the Bible in community, or if you've ever read a passage of Scripture multiple times, then you know, then you know how often Scripture yields this treasure trove of different and beautiful truths or meanings. And that's the blessing we receive. That's the blessing we receive when we let the Bible be the Bible and realize that that God continues to speak through Scripture in fresh ways. So then, what's the alternative to that statement? It's not as tweetable. Definitely not going to fit on a bumper sticker, but here it goes. God inspired it. I'm learning to study it, wrestle with it, trust it and live it. And as I do so in light of Jesus, I try to hear God speak. God inspired it. I'm learning to study it, wrestle with it, trust it, and live it. And as I do so in light of Jesus, I try to hear God speak. In other words, it's a Jesus interpretive approach versus a trump card approach. But what if we approached how we read the Bible in light of what Jesus says is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. What if we read scripture with an eye toward how the passage we're reading helps us to love God and our neighbor more? Really, that's just reading scripture through the lens of Jesus himself and his words. So when a passage of scripture seems to be inconsistent with something that Jesus says or the way he lives, we should probably choose Jesus every time, right? Because Jesus is the definitive word of God, the word who was in the beginning with God, the word made flesh. Jesus is the one, remember, Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. That's not a, it's not a perfect metaphor. They never are. But Pastor Adam Hamilton uses the, the image of a colander, You know, colander, you put your vegetables in there, you run water over it so that the dirt that's on the vegetables runs out through the bottom so that you're not ingesting that crunchy stuff when you're biting into your cucumber, right? So he says, similarly, when you come to a passage in Scripture, for instance, like 
Leviticus 20.10 that says that the penalty for adultery is death. But wait a second. A woman caught in adultery was brought to Jesus by a crowd about to stone her because, well, God said it, I believe it. That settles it. And of course, Jesus prevents this from happening. He doesn't excuse the adultery, but forgives the woman and tells her not to sin again. So in other words, when the colander is Jesus, capital punishment for adultery falls through. So when we read scripture, our approach should be through the lens of Jesus and what he teaches us about the heart, the character, and the mission of God. As I said, I'm not a card player, but I am a lover of the Bible in a big way. It has changed my life. It continues to change my life each and every day. Um, it continues to be the adventure book with new treasures to be uncovered and unearthed each and every time that I read it. I read it every day, and each week I, I try my best to preach its words for me and for you and to live and to live it. And yet there are many, many times when I wrestle and struggle with how to make sense of it. And I wonder if maybe you feel the same way too. And so the last thing that we need to hear, or the last thing that we need to say to someone else is God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's a half-truth, and it misses the point. And it's this false security blanket that we try to wrap around ourselves to somehow uh, protect our faith or to protect God's authority as if God needed that. Because interpreting the Bible is not a trump card to lay down to end the conversation. It's an invitation to begin a conversation. It's an invitation to daily conversion. As God uses scripture constantly in new and fresh ways to change us. Because God always has a new card up God's sleeve. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.